Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Hits Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody. And once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. And yes, we are live this evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time for those of you on the East Coast. And always excited to have you guys join in. We've got a great show for you tonight, as always. We're going to be uh, talking with the gang, if you will, on the Coach's Corner panel, and I'll bring them out here in just a moment. And a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined uh, once again by my very special guest, uh, who is a world-renowned golf landscape painter, uh, Linda Harto. She's going to be coming on the show on the second half, uh, so I hope you'll stick around. Um, but uh, always glad to have you guys join in. As I mentioned, we are live every Thursday evening, and uh, the best way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive is the link. Uh, lots of other great places you can tune in. You'll hear about those at the end of the show. Um, but you just go there, scroll down to the uh, – well, actually, if it's live, you can uh, it'll come up right on the main part of the page, but if you miss it, uh, and, or tune in a little bit later and you want to hear the entire show, uh, you can go to that link, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive and scroll to the uh, on-demand section and you'll see it front and center uh, right there and you can listen to it in its entirety uh, a little bit later on when it's convenient for you. So, But thank you for, uh, for joining us again uh, and uh, I'm going to introduce the Coaches Corner panel we'll get into tonight's discussion. All right, first up is Tim Kramer. He is a Visionary Peak Performance Mind Coach, uh, President and Founder of Peak Performance Mind Coaching, a program utilizing innovative and pioneering mind coaching techniques. And he's also a contributor uh, editor with Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, also joining the panel is Alicia Larson. She's a Class A LPGA teacher professional, founder and president of Gratitude Golf, uh, currently head professional at, uh, and director of instruction at Marcus Point Golf Club in Pensacola, Florida and author of The Missing Link, The Powerful Role of Self-Talk in the Mind Game of Golf, and coaches uh, every golfer from beginner, intermediate, up to the advanced players. And coughing in the background is my good friend Clint Wright, a 30-year <laughs> member of the PGA, uh, one of the partners at TGM Golf, uh, who, of course, are a big proponent of the R3 approach, uh, considered, uh, in my opinion, to be one of the best in the short game today and a favorite panelist uh, here on Golf Talk Live. So, guys... Welcome to Coach's Corners uh, on Golf Talk Live. Good evening. Glad Thank we're here. Thank you. Well, glad you guys could join me. Clint, are you going to be all right, or do we, do we need to give yeah, you a break? I'm, I'm surviving. <laughs> yeah, I'm surviving. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm surviving. No, not a problem. It happens. Uh, so just before we get started, Tim, I know you said you wanted 
uh, you wanted to plug something. Did you want to do that now, or do you want to wait at the end uh, well, when I you can, let everybody know wait, how to reach but, you? But, but no, I just I, it's it's just uh, it's ironic, you know, as we talk about the mind game. Uh, one of my guys, uh, somewhat of a former student, but we still stay in touch, uh, just shot 57 uh, in a professional event out wow. in uh, Vegas. And uh, then wow. the following week went, went and uh, won the Arizona Open. So um, it's just always exciting for me, and, and especially with Alicia on the panel tonight. I, I know that we know, and, and Clint, too, is a huge proponent of the mind game. And I don't even know what we're going to talk about tonight, but I, I just got to say that, you know, increasingly in all the sports, we're just starting to see the importance of the, of the mind game blending into uh, physical performance. And as a coach, that's always very exciting for me. Well, congratulations to uh, that young man, and uh, I think he needs to get to the craps table or something or blackjack <laughs> table pretty quick because he's having that kind of luck. Uh, well, that's probably try true. His luck yeah. or, one of, or yeah. one of the slots or something. I don't know. All right, very good. Well, you can uh, mention some more if you like uh, at the end. Um, all right, so uh, I'm going to go – some of the questions I'm going to have you guys uh, each uh, take a go at it, and you'll understand why, and some of them I'm going to pose individually – uh, the first one is one that I'm going to ask all of you. I'm going to do it in the order that I introduced you. So, Tim, I'm going to start with you. Uh, the best tip that you ever gave a student, what was the best tip, do you think? I'm sure you gave a lot of them, but what was uh, one that yeah. stuck to mind? Yeah, I, I got to say that it, just the idea as a mind coach that every everything you're telling yourself becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you can't get your thoughts and your imagination out in front of results and performance, you, you really kind of have no chance. If you're sitting there with a lot of doubt and negative self-talk and whatever, it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and, and that's what you see in your results. I couldn't have said it better myself. Very, very good. Alicia, what about you? What, what's, uh, again, I know we, we've all given many good tips, and, and, uh, but uh, sometimes there's a few that stick out to mine, and obviously a lot of it depends on, on the reception of the student, how they receive it. Um, that's obviously, I think, a given. But what's one of the best tips do you think that you've ever given a student that you can recall? Well, I, I guess I would put it um, – I hope you can hear me because I'm in my car traveling, but um, I – I think that for me, obviously, what was just mentioned about self-talk is that would have been probably my number one thing. But, you know, I always ask my students if, you know, if I said to you what you say to you, would you allow me to be your friend? And everybody that I've ever asked that would say, well, no way. You know, there's no way I let anybody, anybody talk to me like that. And I'm like, well, then, okay, so let's talk about that, you know, so. That would be um, that's really that really gets to the core of, of people in my it's just it, it's right under the surface they know that they're mean to themselves but they still do it and if you can kind of tap into that and kind of reverse that it's really really I don't think as golf professionals we can really make the progress that our students want when we're standing in front of them if they don't address that issue I really don't feel like there can be anything that can be achieved or even try to reach your full potential by having that that piece really in place. It just has to be addressed. The other thing is I would say um, I, I, I think tip-wise, if I, I really honestly feel when I work for Golf Digest schools and they emphasize that, you know, a large percentage of the problems that people encounter with their golf swing are something they do before they move in their fundamentals. 
And so I really have focused on that with the masses and said, you know, let's just go for those first. And it really does improve people. And they, you don't have to, you don't have to have it be a, you know, a major undertaking and an overhaul of their golf swing, but just some, just some, you know, subtle changes here and there with their fundamentals. And it really can make a difference and equipping them with the knowledge of what the fundamentals and how they can affect positively or negatively their game. So I think I really, I really enjoyed, you know, teaching people about the fundamentals of the game, you know, in general, just starting off. And then, of course, you have to go to the, the movement and everything else once you move. But that's been, that's been very helpful for the, you know, the masses for me. Very good. I, I like that answer. Um, again, um, definitely some, some words to, to live by. Clint, what about you? I know you've had some good tips as well that you've uh, shared over the sure. many years that you've been teaching as a professional. Uh, any one that, that maybe sticks out to mind? It might be one that you've repeated a lot to a number of students, but is yeah. there one particular that you can think of it, it that is. really stuck out? It's real simple. Let's start with the putter. What do you think? You know, when you get a student come mm-hmm. up, all they want to do is bang balls and, and – I start my lesson programs off over the years, and I've kind of refined it down as all I work on anymore, is we're going to start putting because I always ask the student what the objective of the game is. And, well, the objective of the game is to put the ball in a hole. I said, all right, well, let's figure out how to do that first, and and then we can keep score. Uh, So really just more of a, not a tip, but more of an improvement strategy that we, we kind of instill in our students first off is if we're looking for a better score, we've got to figure out how to put it in the hole first. And then we can figure out how to get up there and left shot. So not necessarily a tip, just a strategy for improvement. Mm-hmm. And we always start people off putting to figure out how to put it in the hole. I think that's a great answer as well. Um, sometimes getting direct to the point, um, I think, is, is, the, is the best way to, to handle it. I think sometimes, sure. as you're, you're right, Clint, I think a lot of students – um, think that they need to pull out the driver and, and see how much more distance they can get. And, you know, it's nice to be able to hit the ball long, but at the same time, if you're not in the fairway, if you're not keeping it in the short grass, um, you know, a driver sometimes is not your friend. So I would be much more inclined and rather be more proficient on the putting surface because that's where you're going to score your shots um, the majority Certainly. of time. So well said. That's right. um, let me ask, uh, I'm going to ask this one here of um alicia Uh, i'm going to start in a different order this time Uh, alicia let's talk for a second about bunker play this is a nemesis for many golfers what can we do to make it easier for amateurs to hit out of the sand why do they have so much tough time doing that and we look at the pros on television and they make it look so easy why is it so easy for the pros why do the amateurs have such a tough time um i i mean i I strongly feel that the amateur player doesn't isn't aware of the importance of the entry level. Well, first of all, they're, you know, just they're set up and everything, but the entry level into the sand. So you can, you know, I've, I'm sure this is a drill that every, every golf professional has given people where you draw a line in the sand and you, you know, have them see visually where they're entering the sand. Um, and that, that helps their, you know, visual, but I also think the experiential side of feeling acceleration is uh, you know you you have to you have to be stronger out of the bunker and you know they're they just don't take that sand and finish they you know they're going to take sand and and not finish or they're going to finish and don't take sand and that's the entry level thing so I think that you know Dave Pels when he made me be a proficient 
bunker player and I had to stand, you know, in the sand and have him watch me for hours, he was, I mean, he said if you, he had, he had me hit three irons out of the bunker and, you know, lay that baby wide mm. open and you have acceleration with a three iron and it, you know, that gets you to be a really good bunker player for sure. And I mean, you know, when you're standing there with Dave Pels and he's watching you for hours, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 you become a pretty good bunker player. And, but I, I, it was about acceleration. He really honestly felt that, you know, if you can, if you accelerate with your bunker shots, it's actually going to help your full swing. And so that was kind of his mindset relative to the schools that I went to when he was there. So um, I think, I think entry level and just the acceleration and the strength that it, that it takes to get out of a bunker, um, you know, they got to keep moving through that sand. Club's not hitting it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting because I think a lot of golfers too uh, forget the fact that they're not hitting the ball first uh, in a bunker shot. They're hitting the sand, um, and right. you know so there, there's that that sort of connection is lost, if you will. And it's always interesting too. You, you know, you mentioned about really having a good follow through, and and you know where we see a lot of golfers tend to kind of just thump the club into the sand and then all of a sudden stop. Uh, they're not actually having a follow through. Uh, and obviously, there are certain situations where that might be applicable. If the if the ball is plugged, you might not follow through quite as much. It may be more of a thumping uh, uh, yeah. action, if you will. But um, you know, it's funny because you watch them hit on on uh, you know the hard surface on the ground, and they'll swing for the hills. And in a bunker, it's like this dainty shot that they're trying to hit uh, yeah. in their minds, yeah. and. <laughs> It's like there's no effort whatsoever. So it's just kind of interesting. It's always yeah. been, I think, as I said, a nemesis for many golfers. So you, you, I think you explained that quite well. And, yeah, it would be very intimidating to, I, uh, to have somebody uh, like Dave Pels uh, to watch you for several hours for sure. <laughs> well, um, and I've always said, you know, with the bunker, if you can't be, this is not for the meek and the mild in here. You've got you've to be strong and get it out of there. <laughs> and, you know, the, the strong, get, the, get that sand and get it up out of there. So. Can't be uh, just decelerating and being scared of that shot. I couldn't agree more. Um, Clint, I'm going to come to you on this one here. Um, Do you think most golfers focus too much on technique and not enough on result? And if so, how do we change that, or should we? I think a lot of golfers focus too much on getting everything just perfect, right? Uh, This was a good one, I think, for you, so go ahead. Oh, absolutely, they think. We all do. I mean, it's what we see every day. You know, there there's technique. This we we can watch uh, YouTube, we can read magazines, and there there's 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 a spattering of things about you know how to take advantage of it. But you know, we we work a lot with players trying to get them to focus on their weak areas, and therefore mm-hmm. we want to assure them at some point that their technique is good enough to advance the ball into the scoring area. You know, and, mm-hmm. and it takes practice. You've got to work on technique, get the fundamentals down. But at some point, you have to believe that your, your, your technique and your form is good enough. Stop, stop mm-hmm. fretting over it. Stop, stop getting over the ball trying to keep your left elbow close to your side or whatever the, the, the newest uh, quirky thing is that you've read or heard on, on the Internet about, well, you know, I always get a big kick out of it. Hey, 10 minutes to 20 more yards. Come on. I mean, that's, that's trying to teach me this, you know. Uh, I hate, I don't want to be a, you know. But who, you know, 
but you're absolutely correct because that's what we keep getting as a golfing public. That's what we keep getting fed because so so therefore that must be the the way to get better at, at our game is to be better from a fundamental and technique standpoint. But you know you can only hit it so good, and you can only hit it so mm-hmm. good based on the, the the amount you play, you know. And and so the best players in the world just try to maintain good ball striking ability. They don't go out and try to keep changing their technique continually. They they mm-hmm. become satisfied with the technique and only practice in order to maintain it, not to make it different. Right. Okay. And so therefore they focus their attention on being able to play the course in front of them. Now we play the same guy courses a lot, so you kinda of get used to that and you and you but the, the tour players and the top-line players, they're playing different courses all the time, so they're spending their time getting used to this playing surface this week. They don't show up to try to make their swing better. And I think that the average amateur never gets to a comfort position to think that their ball striking is good enough compared to the amount of time they spend on it. You know, so right. if I'm out there practicing every day and working on it, maybe I can tweak my swing a little bit and get it better. But at some point, you reach the end of that, and then you have to go to Tim, all this, the mind game and being able to use what you have. You know, I truly believe that most of the people that play golf have hit good shots before. So the question mm-hmm. is, is what's getting in your way? And I think many times the desire to make their technique better is getting in the way of them making good swings already. So we just have to, as a student or and as a teacher, we have to prove to our students that their technique is good enough. Now let's begin to learn how to use it, not necessarily improve it. Yep. Uh, and that really brings up uh, uh, some great points. You're exactly right. I think very early on, again, it doesn't matter what age you are, if you're a beginner golfer, then you need to focus on technique. You need to understand how the uh, swing is coordinated, what all the, the components, the pieces that go together. But you're right, Clint. There comes a point in time when you kind of max out aspect of it, and now it becomes, okay, how do I put all this together? How do I utilize what I've learned? And I think right. the majority of amateurs go out there, and they're continually, um, when something doesn't go right, they automatically assume that all the w- wheels on the bus have fallen off, and they go back and they try to reinvent that all the time. And you're right. You don't see top-line players, um, certainly the majority. I mean, you've seen a few over the years that change up things, not, but it's just because they're looking for something specific. But the majority of them don't. Once they get to a certain level, it now becomes other parts of their game that they have to focus on. So that's a great, great point because, again, technique is important to a point. But if you continually uh-huh. are focusing on that, you're never going to score. And all you're going to That's do correct. is every time you hit a bad shot, you're going to try and tweak and fix and adjust and ultimately end up dissatisfied. And I think that's really why a lot of people that do leave the game is out of frustration of trying to constantly massage that technique when really what they could do is focus on the scoring aspect. They've already got the game. They've already been able they know they can, as you said, they know they can hit a good golf shot. Um, we're not all going to hit every shot perfect. So they know they, they already know what to do to get that. So it's now time to focus on how do I put it together to 
uh, have the best chance at uh, improving my score. Um, that's a great point. I really appreciate uh, that approach to it. All right, Tim, I'm going to come back to you. And uh, this is a little bit, um, I think, really for students, um, again, what we're going to tackle with the beginning students. What should students be doing before they come back for a lesson, uh, say for lesson two? They've already come to you for a lesson, uh, or Clint, or Alicia, or myself, um, and we've sort of set the parameters of what we're going to focus on. Is there something that they should do before they come back to see you again? If so, what is it? Uh, and do you have any requirements for them to work on before they do come back? Yeah, uh, that, that's a, a great issue in terms of, uh, and I think as instructors we've seen uh, probably those of us who have coached for a while, we've seen every every type of student and personality style and whatever. But the one thing that I think, and in, in part of it perhaps is a coaching issue, but the other one is a student issue. Um, I don't. I, I generally try and give the students that I work with a single task that they have to get good, a decent at. I shouldn't say good, and good's always a very relative term anyway. But I try to keep it a very simple, sequential task that they can accomplish before they come to see me again. Because I know as an instructor, one of the worst things that that, uh, that happens is um, they um, when they don't they don't really do and repeat what we're asking them to do, and they just come back for their weekly lesson or whatever. And it's great as instructors, I guess, for filling the books, but in terms of really helping them, I'm not sure that we, we do until they acquire a certain skill. Okay. The other thing is, and, and, and I love what you guys were just talking about in terms of the, the frustration level, and I think that a huge part of the frustration level is because they're not improving, uh, at, at the pace that they think that they should be improving, and so they get frustrated and they either quit the sport or, or whatever. So, yeah, I, I do think as instructors we really have to do maybe a little better job of holding them accountable for the task at hand. And uh, I, I don't see – it's it's very easy to get distracted or – uh, the other thing is we were talking about, you know, about YouTube clips and everything like that. Uh, I can't tell you the number of in, students over the years, I'll get them focused on something and they'll come back the next week or two weeks later. And, yeah, I saw this on, on YouTube and it says do mm-hmm. this and this and this. And it, and it just is <laughs> either kind of totally opposite of what you're trying to get them to work on or or um, it's it's an interesting game, isn't it, in terms of self-analysis. And I guess maybe the point I'm trying to get at is I've uh, got a saying that I've loved for a long time, feels not real. And so many times what they think they're doing, even in terms of what they've seen or read or this is what I've read or this is what YouTube is saying I should do, and and A, it may or may not be right. But B, most of the time in my experience, they don't even have the feedback mechanism in place to know if they're actually doing it. And so the whole thing just kind of turns into a uh, um, not really sure if I'm doing. So that's why as an instructor, I guess the point I'm trying to make is we have to be very specific with what uh, we're trying to get them to do. We have to make sure that they understand what we're trying to get them to do and, and, and then just stay uh, single, uh, on a single task. 
Very good. I, I agree as well. Um, great, great points, Tim. Thank you. Um, uh, Alicia, I, uh, this question I want to ask you, um, and that is, do you help your students? You know, let me preface this a little bit. You know, all students get into a jam once in a while. They get a little overwhelmed in certain situations. Um, but sometimes some students have learned and seek comfort in a go-to shot. Do you help your students develop a go-to shot in those times when they are feeling a little bit anxious or overwhelmed? Do you help them develop a shot in their bag that they can go to that will kind of help them power through whatever situation they might be in? And if so, what, uh, what do you normally advise them? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, there's different – I mean, my first thought is there's different go-to shot scenarios, but I, I was thinking I, I kind of drifted off into more of a go-to club. <laughs> One of my girls last sure. night was telling me their high school coach – um, was you know you know she she there's a par five that that I had two kids that were FaceTiming with me and telling me about their round and one girl took a chance and risked going over the this kind of a coolie area with her driver and the other one took a seven iron and and she goes she was explaining to me how uh, she goes you know me and my hybrid and she goes I took a seven iron and then I you know I can crush that thing I can hit that thing anywhere I can uh, there's no doubt I can hit that club from anywhere and my coach came up and said that was the wrong club. <laughs> she was so mad because she goes, he doesn't understand that I can hit that club anywhere. I mean, any, and, and I just, I kill it all the time. So I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that. So, you know, he's probably got to get to know your game a little bit, but she, she has a go-to clubs. And um, I think there's go-to shots relative to, um, you know, I'm thinking also a short game with maybe keeping mm-hmm. it a little more compact and, not doing a full swing and just those go-to shots that are kind of, you know, throwing darts more into the greens and just those are a little bit more controlled and not, not so, you know, out of, uh, out of the full swing menu, if you will. But um, those are ones that my kids and my students have really appreciated are those shots that feel like they're not quite full swing um, that they really like that. It feels more connected, controlled, and, and they're just a little more accurate with it. So I would say, you know, I think most people have a go-to club or, cl- you know, a couple clubs in their bag that they really like. And then that little controlled um, shot that I would say maybe like a 10 to 2 shot on the clock or, you know, those kind of shots are, are what my students have really appreciated over the last, you know, however many years, 10 years that I've really started focusing on that, you know, that particular method. But anyway. No, great points. And, you know, I think sometimes even just as something as simple as off the tee, you know, a lot of uh, students that maybe are not comfortable with their driver, sometimes a club. Maybe mm. it might be a hybrid um, or a fairway yeah. wood, something that helps them keep it in play is is really what I think is very, very helpful for a lot of students. I think a lot of times, you know, students tend to, you know, try to pull off the hero shot thinking, well, maybe if I just do this, um, and maybe it not, might not be in their best interest. So sometimes even, um, you know, a, a shorter iron, like a six or a seven iron, a mid iron, mm-hmm. uh, just keeping it in the fairway. If they're not a very accomplished player, let's just keep it in the fairway. And, you know, as long as you can hit it 150 and 60 yards down the, the fairway, you can pretty much reach in a few shots most par fours and par fives. So having a right. go-to shot or even a go-to club, as you suggest, I think is a great way to approach it. Um, thank you for that, Alicia. Uh, Clint, um, this one is that you brought up putting. Uh, putting, I'm going to give to you. 
how do we handle fast greens? Is there a technique for playing Augusta like greens? Well, you know, the joking answer, just keep it below the hole, right? I mean, that's the way you manage a fast green. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's simple, you know, hate to do that to you, but, um, no, I, I think that, uh, yeah, no fast greens, slow greens, you, you manage them all the same way. You know, you, you know, you know that we've talked many times about benchmark strokes and, mm-hmm. You know, you go to the putting green, and if you're using the benchmark ideas, okay, those benchmark distances are going to change from a slow green to a fast green. And so you mm-hmm. have to have some data, some information to work with. So if you're dealing with a green that you're not, you know, maybe not your home course, and it may be a little slower, it may be faster, I, I think that, that the question really evolves around abnormal speed. Not what you're accustomed to, okay? Uh, and so you need to go and get that data and understand that your your inside your your back foot putt goes eight feet today when it usually goes you know four feet. So you have to take that to the course with you and just try to manage the greens that you're not generally accustomed to, uh, and you know try to the, the lag putting on fast greens as we all know, is much more difficult than lag putting on a medium to slow green because um, you got more rollout. And so you on your benchmark mm-hmm. strokes where the greens are really fast, you, again, there, if I go to a course like that, I want to, to kind of gauge the rollout. How much is the rollout past my normal distance with my benchmark strokes? Because that's what the fast green is going to give you. It's not necessarily that the that it's going to be a, a, a shorter stroke for the same distances, but the rollout on a fast green is going to be the additional distance that you may not be accustomed to. So, the, really, the answer is is simple: is that you have to do the same thing on a fast green you do anytime if you're going to go to the benchmark ideas to understanding how far the ball rolls at certain length of strokes. And you just have to try to manage that as you go around. And, you know, particularly, I think if it's really fast greens, that that pitch shot from around the green, the player needs to be really focused on not necessarily getting it close to the hole, but focus a little bit more attention on what side of the hole they want to be on. So just the speed, the second, the shot into the green, particularly now we don't want to control the the second shot on par fours, we pick it on the green where we can get it. But if you're pitching the ball, start thinking about the side of the of the hole you want to putt from. And generally speaking, the green will take it to the easiest putt if you let it. Because the rollout is going to take it down the fall line. And if it takes it down the fall line, then you should have a relatively you know, straight putt coming back uphill. So just start mm-hmm. thinking about those chips, not necessarily – trying to get it really close, but start trying to think about where that, that fast putt's going to be the easiest. And obviously we'd want to try to get it below the hole on the fall line. So you manage it with the benchmark strokes, but you also manage a little bit different focus in your pitching as well. I think that was uh, well said. And, uh, you know, I, you know, here, here's the thing. 
really is is and I like the way and that's one of the reasons why I came to you for this particular question because I know you've answered something similar to this before uh, as you've alluded sure. to but uh, you know I think a lot of people when it comes to putting fall into the same trap they go out and they practice a few short putts then they do some lag putting but they don't really as you put it sort of put together any sort of stats so there's really no understanding um, and each time they go out it, it's different and without having some sort of, a, as you said, a benchmark to work from uh, or a guide, if you will, to work from, um, it becomes very, very difficult to develop any consistency in your putting game. And so I think going out, if, if you're going to go out and work on the practice screen uh, and you've got a little bit of time, that's what you want to do is setting up those benchmarks. How far, you know, what do I need to do to get it to roll this amount and this distance and so on and so forth, and then have that as you know, part of your repertoire, right, when you get out on the green. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks don't do that. Right, exactly. It's information. The more information, and that's what the pros do. The pros have that information. Um, And, you know, that's why they keep those stats, so they can Mm -hmm. fall back on that at a later point. Because, as you said, they're playing so many different courses. um, They're not playing the same one. So we actually have an advantage for those of us that are maybe playing uh, our, our home course or uh, a course that we regularly uh, play at, we have an advantage because the conditions typically tend to be the same week in, week out, given you know uh, a few enough. variances yeah, in close. weather and things like that. Certainly close enough to give us a general idea. So um, mm-hmm. we have an advantage. So doing that is, is definitely a good thing. All right, I'm going to uh, come back to uh, Tim. And again, I'm going to ask each of you a question. If we have time, I've got one that I'd like all of you to, to answer. Um, but this one, Tim, I want you to – we're playing for a club event. How do we prepare physically, mentally, and emotionally for that event, Tim? Yeah, really, really good question because I think the important thing is that um, what I find as a coach is that I think sometimes that players don't break it down into each of the three areas. Um, I look at mental really as strategy and it's really thought-based and decision-based and, you know, do I want to hit the six iron or the seven iron? Where's the wind coming from? What's the lie of my ball? Um, Things like that, but really more decision-based. And then physical, of course, well, what am I bringing to the course today? You know, how do I feel? How does my body feel? What kind of shots am I warming up with? Uh, maybe what are my tendencies today and things like that. And then emotional, of course, and I, I, I still maintain that emotion is probably the driving force for the other two, uh, the, the mood that I'm in and my attitude and, and you know, do I really think I can get the job done? But um, as a coach, I really like to see each of those components when we talk about it, what can we bring to the course? Yeah, I think that's important that we do all that, but maybe particularly that we really begin to develop routines in terms of a pre-shot routine where we go through each of those three components. You know, what kind of shot do I want to hit? And, and say I want to hit a cut shot or whatever. Then this is how that swing would feel. And and too many times what I see are amateurs without a uh, any sort of a pre-shot routine. So they sit and imagine maybe what they want to have happen to the ball but kinesthetically, from a field standpoint, they don't really have a clue of, of, of how their body, of how they want it to move and how they want the club face to feel. And, 
and things like that. So the brain goes scanning, of course, for information that it doesn't have current access to. And I do see a lot of errors that come from that. And then again, emotionally, I think that maybe setting the tone, well, I know setting the tone before a shot, but also before we get to the course. I don't think enough amateurs really set the tone for how they want to, the attitude they want to bring to the game today and the mood that they're going to be in. And that's when it only takes a shot or two for them to be totally off in the weeds and, you know, bad hole and they're pretty much done for the day. And that, of course, is, you know, we instructors know is probably one of the biggest differences between the rank amateur and, say, a touring professional is, Touring professionals tend to, although not all the time, but tend to get over their mistakes pretty quickly, whereas amateurs, uh, it just it goes, it can be a downward spiral pretty quickly. And so, um, yeah, what we bring to, you know, again, we could say what we bring to the course, but I would dare say it needs to be more specific than that in terms of what we bring to each shot. And then, uh, you know, are we really present to the experience? Are we playing at a shot at the time? Is our, is our mind off in the past or the future or uh, all that kind of stuff? So the ability to just stay focused in the present moment, I think, is the best shot anybody's got at playing good golf. I, again, couldn't agree uh, more wholeheartedly, uh, Tim. Great, uh, great points. Uh, Alicia, this is a um, question I have, and, and Tim sort of uh, got into it a little bit, but uh, maybe you can um, talk about some different aspects of it. But um, everybody goes out, and whether you're a, a, a junior particularly or maybe a collegiate player, we'll, we'll deal with that end of the spectrum just to make it a little bit uh, more defined. Um, they, they anticipate that they're going to lose from time to time. Um, probably more so than they're going to win, obviously. Um, dealing with that loss, especially for juniors and even collegiate players, can be very difficult. Um, maybe even to add more insult to injury, if they've, been, if they've been leading the tournament and then something happens and they lose that. Um, some players, Greg Norman comes to mind on a professional level who's had that happen in majors a number of times over his career, um, some say he didn't recover um, when he lost to Nick Faldo uh, back in, I believe it was 89 in the Masters. Um, so what do we do? How do, we, how do you handle that with a student? We'll deal again with junior golfers uh, and or collegiate golfers. Um, when they've come back from an event, they're coming to see you and they're down because they, they haven't been able to uh, get over that event. What do you do? What, what's the conversation you're going to have with them? And where do you start off? Do we just sort of pick up on whatever lesson was next or, or what do we do? So several things come to mind when I, when you're asking that question. Um, but so the first thing is like, I'll ask them what was good and what could be better. So I'm, I'm trying to focus on the, you know, what could be better is asking you like, okay, where do you need some work and what, 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 where's our focus maybe need to be like turned to, but, um, and then, and you can start asking that, you know, and just start writing down some things that, that maybe some mistakes they made, or if they made course management mistakes on the course, that sort of thing. Um, but maybe they had a mental lapse and there. So there's those, all those learnings in there, like what, what take me through the round. Um, I also, you know, would, would encourage them to evaluate when they're done. 
what's around, which is what we, you know, when I ask them that question, that's what we're essentially doing. And what did they learn about themselves when they were out there? Like, if they can look at themselves objectively now and say, yeah, I, I really, you know, what you've taught me about how to stay, you know, clear-minded and, and let go of things, I, I didn't do that so well, or I really did, you know, that really well. And so there's, I've taught my kids adversity statements, and um, some of them are personal. And then we had one that was in a book that I did a, a winter program, and and I just, I actually just received a letter two days ago from one of my students that said, you know, you've taught me that life and golf, there's a lot of adversity and there's a lot of things that aren't going to go my way. But because of that mm-hmm. statement that you you made us all memorized, and it's the, the the sentence is, I am a champion and I have a deep and unwavering belief in myself and my ability to perform well. She literally said, I say that with anything now in my life, that I, I am a champion and I can do this. I've got this. So you, you, I always try to find, even though they lose, I think, or they, they might have lost that particular match or whatever, I want to find what they learned in that particular situation. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, when I, I, played in, I played at a high level of basketball and we won 57 games in a row. And we got to the last season of my senior year and we, we lost this really important game to advance to the state tournament. And I wished we would have lost the game that was really close. Um, like two-thirds of the way through that season. So there wasn't so much pressure. I wish we would have lost to learn, like, what did we learn in that? And so I always focus and tell my kids, I think it's really, it's a really good thing when you maybe don't get the end result that you want, but you got to focus on and have that be a motivation to move forward and, and, you know, work harder and just, you know, where do you need to work at? Is it your mental game? Is it your physical, you know, whatever it is, but it's all, you know, the pie is a lot of parts, but. I always try to focus on what was good and what could be better and saying it's okay to, to have both of those scenarios. You're going to win some and you're going to lose some. So um, they, you have to learn, you have to feel both of them. You've got to experience both of them. Yeah. And that's some great points as well, Alicia, because uh, again, a lot of times um, the sort of go-to um, position for a lot of players uh, especially less skilled players is there must be something wrong with my game. Um, you know, and it could be something entirely different. It may not that they weren't hitting the best shots. There may be other factors that could have been involved. And a lot of times what we find is then they start, you know, as we talked about earlier, sort of start tweaking and monkeying around with the swing and end up making things worse. You know, we're all going to be faced with adversities. And I think that's uh, a great mantra, if you will, that you you have them uh, sort of memorize um, be, because, you know, again, if, you, if you're filling your mind with negative thoughts, uh, again, we're all going to have losses in life, um, not just on the golf course. And if you're not really assessing what the problem is and you're just sort of guessing at it and making changes in areas that may not have anything to do with the reason you didn't win that match, then you ultimately end up making it, uh, compounding it and making it much worse. Um, so, so great points yeah. on that, and that's a great way, I think, to, to handle um, you know, that sort of diversity with, with a student. Um, Clint, we're going to go to this one here. And as I said, if we have time, uh, there's a question I'm going to throw to all three of you and see if we can put this one together. But this one's here, I think, again, for students. And again, obviously, it depends on the level. But, you know, if you were coaching a student and uh, they posed this question, how do I know when to go for it and, or when to play it safe? and be more conservative. 
a lot of people go out there and you get some, you know, steady eddies that go out there and just play it safe all the time, and that's fine, but they never really take any chances. Then you get others that are going for everything. How do we know as a player? How, does the, how do you help the player understand how to use their noggin, if you will, and, dis, and deciding, making right. a decision when it, it's appropriate to maybe go for it or maybe when it's just, hey, let's just play this one safe? What, what do you, what's the conversation there? Well, I mean, when you get into those conversations, I, I think you're talking about a, a well above average player. Those are not questions that you get from the the hunter shooter. Uh, those are the questions you get from that you know the the kid or collegiate player or good amateur player. You know, and this comes obviously comes down to decision making and how, what you feel comfortable with. And uh, when I was coaching collegiately, I would go around the course that we were playing in a tournament and say, okay, what is a you know on on a given hole is par a good score here? You know, mm-hmm. tough hole, you got some maybe hazard to the left or the right, is par good score on this hole. Well, those are the holes where you don't play the hero shot because par is a good score. There's going to be, if you're going to win this tournament, there's going to be more bogeys made here than birdies on this hole. So this is where can I make a par from? No hero shots. Then mm-hmm. on the holes that you're going out there, so okay, well, it's kind of open. I can, you know, par is not a good score on this hole. That's when I need to take dead aim. I need to, make, I need to give myself a good chance to make a birdie. But like I always told my kids when we were playing, you know, we shoot 288 every round, we win. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. even par. And, and so where can I make par? So then you start breaking that decision down to both what the individual does as far as their ball flight is concerned. You get a hole where you can take it at it. If I'm, if I'm a, a right-to-lefter, I may have a hole that I'm going to go for it, but the player that plays from left to right may may not. So it gets that real individual um, thing. I don't think there's a blanket mm-hmm. thing you can say about when to go for it or not. I think mm-hmm. it comes down to real individual, what the ball flight is, the particular type of hole, and making some decisions on whether par is a really good score here. And the tour players do that. You hear them, hey, I make a par. That's a great score on this hole. Let's go to the next one. Right. You know, they're right. going to right. hit in the middle of green two-putt and go to the next opportunity because the risk and reward on that is too high. It's just too mm-hmm. high. So you have to determine if you're playing a, a home course you know, if you're, if you're out playing a practice round for a tournament, you really need to start evaluating what you think the field is going to do on this hole and play it accordingly based on your based on your game. But figure out which ones are good pars, and those are the ones you play safe. You play the middle of green, take your par. Maybe you make a 25, 30-footer, but you take your par, go to the next real good opportunity. And that comes down from individual players uh, and individual courses, but it really comes down to a hole-by-hole hole decision. Develop your strategy that you're going to play and then stick to it. I think I see a lot of kids I coach that we go through that, and before you know it, hey, you know they're they're not playing that that safe hole safe. They got it aimed right dead at it. You know they're not staying with their plan. The best scorers stay with the plan, and they develop. You know that old thing about you know plan your work and work your plan. Um, mm-hmm. And when it comes down to where you're going to go for it or not, I think those decisions are made before you tee it up on the first hole. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a uh, again. Yeah, I think that's another great point. 
Um, again, obviously, it's going to vary um, from player to player. That's 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 a given, right. I think. Um, and I think that you have to. You, this is where you really have to understand your game um, and what your abilities are. If you know that you're right. a competent ball striker and you can hit the ball well, um, you might be willing to, to take a little, a little bit more risk. And if you're not, uh, if you're very shaky, you know, off the tee or, or even from the middle of the fairway, if you're not confident in your approach shots then you don't necessarily need to be going for it, especially if you're going over water and, and uh, trying right. to go for a tight pin. So, and, and, you know, Nicholas famously said that as well. You know, a lot of times he would get up on a course um, where he might have a hole or two that didn't fit his eye. And he said the same thing. Mm-hmm. If I can get away with the par here, um, then I'm happy. And uh, if a birdie happens to come my way, that's even better. But, again, he, it was more strategy for him. Uh, than than actual his uh, ball striking ability. All right, so this one here, I'm going to try and see if we can sneak in in the last few minutes. Tim, we're going to start with you, and this is one um, I don't want you to answer all of them, uh, but maybe just add one or, or so, maybe two at the most, um, and we'll have to go fairly quickly here so we can get everybody in. But um, maybe a few tips, or I said here five, but there might be more, it might be a little bit less. Tips to help navigate any round. So if you're Got in a student that's maybe getting ready to play an event um, coming up. What's maybe a tip that you're going to give them to help them navigate around the course? Yeah, I got to say the the best tip that I would have is, and we talk about it a lot, is one shot at a time. And and I don't think that can be emphasized enough. I am a firm believer that all negative emotion out there, all the doubt we feel and and the indecision we feel and the lack of belief we feel, always surrounds a mind that's gone into the past or into the future. And so if we can just keep a player really one shot at a time and maybe more importantly, something they believe that they can achieve in that moment with that shot. That to me would be the key to, uh, to just not getting uh, what we tend to do as players is we drag up the past, something that didn't work. We forget about right, the now right. and project it right into the future. Oh, this could happen again. And before right. long, we've just got a mind that is all over the place. So yeah, one shot at a time. I, I'm very fond of saying Take care of the shot, and it all works out. And and even what I deal with, work with a lot of college players. How do I get a college scholarship? You know, and they're so far off in the future. And I tell them, you take <laughs> care of each shot one at a time, and the coaches will find you. But you got to take care of the shot. Mm-hmm. You can't be thinking about. And it's true of tour school too, right? The the, the professionals, uh, yep. the the mini tour players, their mind is so far off in the tour that they forget to take care of the shots. Just take care of the shot one at a time. That's the best advice I've got. Yep, I, I think that's a great one. Yeah, too many of them are thinking about winning the Masters, and they haven't even gotten their tour card yet. So, yeah, I think that's a good, uh, a good one to start <laughs> Bing, with. Bingo. Uh, Alicia, yeah, what a, bingo. Right. Alicia, what, what about you? Is there a tip that you might have um, uh, that you would give your students if they were getting ready to maybe play in an upcoming event? It could be a club uh, championship or it might be uh, a mini tour event or whatever the case may be, or maybe just even with their friends on the weekend, they haven't played uh, maybe in a week or two and, and they want to get out there. What would the tip be that you would like to uh, start them off uh, on the right path with? Yeah, I, I certainly concur with what was said before about the one shot at a time. That's always, you know, very great uh advice for any golfer and then you know I, I think one of the things that comes to mind is 
I talk about A, B golf, and really, you know, ball is always A, and B is where you, you know, the prime place where you want to put it. And I try to give them like a little fun thing to say, okay, you know, whatever, wherever, if you stood on a, at a specific point on the golf course and you could pick your ball up and just walk it out there and say, I want to be right there. That's B. That's so I'm, I'm going to hit my ball at A and I want to go to B. But in that, I want to make sure that I get what I call a triple W line, meaning I'm going to win and win and win. So, I mean, you, there's always risk and reward, obviously, with golf. But for the masses, I think the most part I want to try to emphasize, if I hit it straight, I win and I'm in play. If I hit it a little left, I'm okay, I'm in play. And if I hit a little right, I'm okay and I'm in play. So I always try to get them to strategize a little bit about where do you want B, you know, if you pick that ball up, where do you want it to be? And then also find your triple W line. So those are the two things that, you know, just, uh, and then also what was mentioned before about, you know, the the one shot at a time. I think that's a, a great uh, a great tip as well. Clint, what about you? Uh, what's a tip that you might have? Again, somebody might be playing in an upcoming event and you want to get them started off right um, to enjoy their round. What, what would you uh, suggest to them to help navigate? Well, I, I think... It, What's been said is wonderful. The question I always have is how do I accomplish that? Okay, And what I try to get my students to understand, is we want to be one shot at a time. We, we want to take the good line. But how I'm going to be able to accomplish that is really by controlling my tension level. Try to stay relaxed. Don't let it increase. Uh, and control your breathing. I mean, if, as long as I'm breathing calmly, my heart rate is going to go down. If I start holding my breath or breathing short, you know, I'm, I'm going to, it's fight or flight. My tension is going to go up and whatever. So when I'm out playing, I know I try to start each swing by, all right, am I breathing properly? You know, and you can watch the videos of the PGA Championship and watch Mickelson behind the ball and pay attention to what he's doing. He's standing there mm-hmm. getting his heart rate down bringing his tension level down to where he can stay in the moment and hit the shot that we all want to hit. So everything that was said is wonderful, but the way we accomplish that is maintaining consistent low levels of tension in your body and keep breathing, and then we can accomplish those things. So don't, you know, pay attention to your breathing through the round. Pay close attention to the grip pressure you have and your shoulder tension, and then you'll be able to stay in the moment and hit the shot that, that you're capable of hitting. Very interesting uh, tip as well. Um, I, I think I would add to that, and I think it, it sort of falls in a little bit of line of what you're talking about, Clint, is I would probably say to, to my student is play to your rhythm. In other words, find what your rhythm or cadence is in your game. And the reason why I say that is quite often we see players, uh, obviously not at the professional level, but we see players, amateurs that get in with a group, some groups uh, might play more like a, a Nick Price. They're very quick in their rhythm, very quick in their pace. Um, some players tend to try to ri- rise up to that level, of, of, and it may not be. They may be more like an Ernie Els or a Freddie Couples in their cadence. So I like to find their rhythm. And, and again, as you suggest, uh, Clint, I think uh, controlling your breathing, being in a relaxed mode is going to help them do that. But you never want to play outside of your rhythm. So whatever your natural body rhythm is, that's how you want to play. Because when you change that, it doesn't matter what sport you're playing or what you're doing in life. If you're a slow walker, then that's obviously 
going to be connected with your rhythm. You don't all of a sudden start walking fast or running fast if that's not in your rhythm. So I think once you establish what your rhythm for the day is going to be and you stick with that, you're going to find that you're going to be in much more control of what your body does throughout the day. If you start changing that rhythm, like you said, if you start breathing a little faster or a little uh, different, um, then that's going to change a lot of that. So that's what I would probably say is find your rhythm. And one way to do that, to develop that consistency, I've always found, and we've talked about this many, many times on the show, is developing that pre-shot routine. Because that will help you keep a pace. If you develop a a consistent pre-shot routine that you're going to use before every single shot, and you do not vary it uh, any way, shape, or form, you're going to keep within that rhythm. If you one minute you stand up and you take two looks and whack the ball, and the next time you're standing back and you're throwing grass up and you're doing something entirely different, um, a lot of times you'll fall out of that rhythm. And so that's what I always try to do with students that I've worked with is to get them to find their natural body rhythm. And you'd be surprised how many don't know it. Um, So those are some things. I think those are some great tips if we want to help our golfers to get out and navigate any round. And uh, I think you guys, as always, have done a great job. So I appreciate uh, your answers tonight, guys. And uh, as I always do, I'm going to give each of you a moment or two to let the folks know if they want to reach out or uh, get in touch in some way, uh, the best way that they can do that. So we'll do in the order that we started. Uh, Tim, you go first, and then uh, Alicia, and then Clint. Yeah, they can uh, they can reach me at uh, peakperformancemindcoaching.com, and uh, would love to love to hear from folks. And uh, certainly, we offer some mind game tips, and uh, I do clinics throughout the country. Starting to get a little bit back into that now that. Uh, that uh, COVID is uh, easing up, although I'm not sure that we're not into another little dip in it. But uh, in any case, uh, that's where they can find me. Perfect. And Alicia, what about you? Uh, you could contact me at uh, gratitudegolf.com, and there's an e- there's an email place where you can uh, contact me through that. And otherwise, I'm in Pensacola. That's the first time I said that one, huh? And uh, at, Mar- at Marcus Point Golf Club. So if they want to, they want to come down to Pensacola at Marcus Point. I I believe that I'm the only female teacher in the entire area. So hey, that's uh, we can just Google that. I guess maybe I don't know. Anyway, it's all good. Yeah. I'm excited to to be here. Well, we're glad to have you down, and welcome to the South officially. Um, Clint, what about yourself? How can we uh, get in touch with you? Well, they can always get it at clintgolf001 at yahoo.com. That's my email. Or they can private message or take a look at um, Third Shot Golf on Facebook. Uh, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And to to help my, my, my guys here tonight, everybody needs to go to Pensacola. It's a wonderful place. And get on Tim's mm-hmm. website and log on and get the thought of the day. I've been getting it for a while now, and there's some really good thoughts of the day, Tim. I, I really look forward to those every morning when I get up. Well, thank so, you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I guess I did forget to yeah, Thank you. I really yeah. do. And uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate, Ted, you include me all the time like you do, and we've had a great time. Thanks. Always uh, is. Well, yeah. I appreciate it. I'm, thank you. I'm glad to have all of you on the show. I appreciate it and all that you bring. Uh, that's what makes it fun uh, every Thursday evening for me. So um, thank you, guys. Uh, have a great uh, weekend, and I'll see you next time on the Coach's Corner panel here on Golf Talk Live. Have a great weekend, guys. Thank you. Thanks again. Good night, everybody. Bye.
All right, that was uh, Tim Kramer, Alicia Larson, and Clint Wright joining me this evening on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will welcome my very special guest, uh, world-renowned golf landscape painter and artist, Linda Harto. Uh, she'll be joining me here in just a moment after these brief messages. This edition of Golf Talk Live is brought to you by Golf Pal, the best place to find only the finest in golf training aids and accessories. Get in on some great deals on leading products such as Down Underboard, Rough Soto, Golf Slingshot, and more. Visit golfpal.golf today. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Golf Pal. We're serious about your game. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. All right. Uh, once again, thank you, everybody, for joining me this evening. I'm very excited to welcome back my special guest, Linda Harto. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her, just for those of you that maybe uh, weren't tuned in the uh, last time she was on. I'll just tell you a little bit about her, and uh, and then I will bring her on, and we'll begin uh, our uh, our interview uh, portion of the show. Uh, Linda is a world-renowned golf landscape artist. Uh, her work is displayed in the permanent collections of such legendary clubs as Augusta National, uh, Laurel Valley, Pinehurst, and Pine Valley, uh, in the personal collections of such golf notables as Jack Nicholas, Ray Floyd, and Reese Jones, and in the collections of the USGA Museum uh, in Far Hills, uh, New Jersey, and in the uh, Morris Museum of Art in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, her paintings of various holes at Augusta National Golf Club are prized by collectors the world over. In addition, uh, Linda painted the first um, uh, first of the U.S. Open Series in 1990, commissioned by the USGA, a 25-year series uh, she completed in 2014, as well as her British Open Championship Series from 1990 to 99. In 2017, uh, Linda was an inductee into the Low Country Golf Hall of Fame and has been honored uh, with the Golf Digest Lifetime Achievement Award. So please welcome my very special guest uh, again this evening, Linda Harto. Good evening, Linda, and welcome back. Very nice to be here. I'm doing just great. Thank you. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I I went from memory. No, I didn't. I had my little cheat sheet here. You had you had so many you had so many accolades. It was hard to to, so I had to write them all down, of course. Um, But welcome back, Linda. I really appreciate you coming back. And and um, I thought what we would do. You're very welcome. My pleasure. I thought what we would do is is maybe go back a little bit um, before we get into uh, the the main part of our discussion, um, and maybe you could just talk about um, how you got to do what you do. Because you know, it's not just like you woke up one day and said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna paint golf landscapes uh, <laughs> or I'm gonna right. paint you know famous golf holes." Uh, there was a process. So walk us back a little. Go back in time a little bit and walk us through that process. How you got to where you are today. 
Okay, well, um, I've always uh, been an artist as, as long as I can remember. So uh, art has always been the first thing in my life. And I painted a lot of different subjects um, and have always made my living from uh, my art. So I learned, you know, kind of to be able to do commission work. Uh, and... In 1984, I was asked if I could paint a golf course, <laughs> and I said, sure, and it happened to be Augusta National. So that's how I got started with golf art. Um, the pros there, which was Dave Spencer and Bob Kletke at the time, uh, they were looking for an artist to to uh, paint and make some prints so they could sell them at the Masters. And uh, mm -hmm. my first one was the 13th hole. And they took the painting and had it printed at the local commercial printer, a friend of theirs, which I had never printed my work before. So it was all new experience for me, for sure. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Anyhow, that's how it got started, and then I worked, you know, I did several paintings for them, and, uh, well, it was 85, 86, 87, and 88, and by then other clubs were calling me, so I thought, wow, there must be something to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, at the time I didn't realize, you know, that I actually... Had I not had I started with any other club, probably it would have been one and done. But right. since it was Augusta, it was like instant instant introduction into the golf world. So and they really appreciated my art. So I thought, well, you know, this is this is maybe a good thing here. <laughs> well, and and what, what's interesting about it is, I mean, you've done a lot of famous holes uh, and mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, you know, golf, golf courses over the years, um, you know, mm -hmm. since then. But you're right. Um, I think starting with something like Augusta National sort of really got you going right out of the gate. Um, and right. I think you're right. I think if you had have gone, uh, you know, to the local muni down, down the street, not that the right. artwork wouldn't have spoken volumes, but again, it, it probably wouldn't have resonated quite as much uh, within the golfing industry. But you very quickly – um, became, uh, you know, world-renowned. I mean, you literally, mm -hmm. um, from a very early point, developed a, a lot of recognition to the point where others, U.S. Open venues uh, mm -hmm. as well, started reaching out and saying, hey, we would like you to do, you know, X, Y, Z. So it, it was right. like a snowball effect. Um, yeah, it really, so it really was. Really the but the, I think the real turning point was when I just started investigating the golf world as a business and went to the 1988 PGA show and that was a real eye opener I realized mm -hmm. that there was nothing out there <laughs> <laughs> there was no art there was no anything you know worthy I thought and I thought wow this is wide open. <laughs> and through that very show, I got uh, connected with a gentleman in 
Scotland, uh, who was a golf antiques dealer. So we kind of went into business together starting then, and he was responsible for helping me get my commission with the RNA for the Open Championship. And then as soon as that was secure, he went right over and talked to the USGA, and we started that. <laughs> so we started both those series in 1990. And at the same time, I was determined to bring uh, the print quality to fine art as well. Mm-hmm. So I had to go and find <laughs> printers and learn, really literally learn the entire process of printing and publishing by myself. But I did. I was determined, you know, to have state of the art every part. You know, not just the painting, but the prints as well. Right, exactly. And, and you know, that's no, trust me, that's no easy task to be able to do no. that. Um, so, it, you know, it took a lot of work. I, I want to talk about for a little bit, again, so, mm-hmm. so people can, can really appreciate what it is that you do. Um, talk about the actual process. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was surprised. I mean, I knew that it would take, um, you know, even the best of, of the best, a while to actually uh, complete a painting, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of prep work that goes into it as well. So maybe you can kind of walk us through a little bit of that. When you first uh, either get you know uh, approached to, to do a specific hole or, or mm-hmm. part of a course or something along that idea, what, where does it begin? Well, it begins really with an agreement, of course. <laughs> but then right. uh, I go to the actual course and... Um, it's a process of kind of listening to people at the course, you know, the pros and the people that play there. What is their most memorable holes? What do they think of when they think of that course? And then I like to see the whole course and kind of get a feeling for its character and then I kind of zero in on the particular holes that I think would make a good representation. And then once we agree on that, or there may be several holes, then I have to photograph those holes in the right light, <laughs> which is always tricky. Mm-hmm. And because that's the part that really... As a fine artist, that's the part that interests me the most is how is that whole lit? How is it sh- how does it look? And I have to find that that perfect lighting which really shows off everything I want you to be able to see. So that takes that can take a while. <laughs> you know, it can take mm-hmm. a week, it can take weeks. It can take more than one trip to the course. Uh, you know, every time I went to Scotland, I'd go to St. Andrews. It would be different every single time I went. And even Augusta. Right. As mm-hmm. many years as I went there to photograph, it was always different in some way. So you're just always looking for that particular scene that maybe you've never seen before that particular lighting uh angle whatever yeah do you ever find 
that or have you ever found when you've gone somewhere i mean obviously you're again when you're talking about augusta national and uh you know uh over in in scotland some of the open uh championship uh, courses that they play on carnoustie and and Mm -hmm. uh and so forth st andrews um were there ever moments you got over there and whether it be the lighting or what have you just was not right and you just oh, yeah. didn't feel like you were capturing the image. <laughs> I figured that would be uh, be something that would happen. So, what do you do in a case like that? You know, you're, I mean, you, you can't. Uh, you know, obviously, I know you're not just going over for one day if you're going to Scotland. But um, right. if you have to go out to a course over several days, does there come a point you say, "Well, I, you know, I guess I'm going to have to accept this," or you just say, "No, I'm going to have to, you know, keep trying." What do you do at that point? Ah. Uh have to go another time maybe another season even different lighting uh it's just like at st andrews if you go in the summertime which you know high summer it's not as interesting as it is in late like august september and october even it's the angle of the sun on the significant holes makes a huge difference and even the kind of light, you know, the kind of light uh, in September and October, I find much more beautiful than in high summer. Mm -hmm. And if they've had a dry year, (laughs) sometimes I don't even, I didn't even go to Scotland. I could tell just by watching the tournaments that this was not going to be a good year. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you know how they can be yeah, when it's you, dry. Right. You know, this just like wispy, rough, and, and not interesting to me. You know, I like to see them at their optimum. Yeah. Well, that's what I was just about to say. You want to see them, figuratively speaking, in, in their best light. Um, yeah. Otherwise, it, it's you're not going to be able to capture the essence of the whole. So now that you you've you've gotten the the images that you need. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and again, that could happen over several weeks or days or what have you, depending on the circumstances. Or years. <laughs> um, or, or, or even years. Um, yeah. Now what happens? What's the next step? Once you look at the photos and you say, okay, these, these are going to work for me, then what's mm-hmm. next in the process? Well, what's next? Of course, while I'm there, I take hundreds of photographs, and I take uh, overall shots and also detail shots. So if I have a scene, um, I will take the 300 millimeter shots of every piece of that scene. So there's like, you know, 20, 30 shots, just one picture, one scene. And that way, when I'm working area, I have a detail that is just like being there, basically. But uh, when I have all those gazillion pictures (laughs) and I'm home in the studio, (laughs) I kind of lay them all out or now I work on the computer looking at all these millions of pictures. And I just look for all the elements that are the best and finally decide on what it's going to look like. And that made that process could take quite a while because I like to literally visualize the painting complete before I ever start. 
So that could take a while. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me ask you a question. Um, mm-hmm. If you're being commissioned, let's say, to do something, whether it be Augusta or, or, or any of the courses that you're doing, mm-hmm. and you've taken all these photos, do you then go back to them, whoever you're dealing with, and show them what you like, and, and do they sort of mm-hmm. have involvement in what, what they want you to do at that point? I mean, obviously, there may be certain holes that they're looking at, or do they basically mm-hmm. rely on your judgment to, to pick whatever image you're going you're, you're gonna, to, you know, uh, transfer yeah, they're, to the canvas, they, they so were pretty good about listening to my take on it, and and in knowing what it's going to be used for is significant too. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's the prints are to be sold at a tournament, or if you know it's for a club, a private club, it's ultimately. All those go into the decision-making on which image it is. But it's usually mutually agreed upon pretty much before I even leave the property. <laughs> or right. it's left up, you know, in, in terms of the U.S. Open, it was usually just left up to me. And the same way with the uh, Open Championship. It's just whatever I thought. Right. Well, sure. They it's obviously your your vision. I mean, they have certain things that they mm-hmm. want, but obviously they're leaving it up to your expertise because you're the one that's going to be uh, essentially commissioning it. Um, yeah, but I mentioned also, earlier too. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, also, you know, I have how shall we put it? <laughs> Over all the years <laughs> of marketing my own work and selling it personally. I developed a sense of knowing what the market wants and what will be successful and what won't. So a lot of times I have to convince, well, not a lot of times, but sometimes I have to convince the person or the people that the scene I've chosen is in their best interest. (laughs) Right. You know? (laughs) (laughs) That's where a little arm twisting sometimes comes in, I guess. Well, and, sometimes, and, but yeah, no, it, because like USGA <laughs> will, they'll they'll think of a hole completely differently than I do. They'll think of it, oh, well, this one has the most strategic advantages and the right. most history and this and that and this and that. But then as a painting, it would look like hell. So <laughs> I have to convince them that, you know, this is not going to be a good image and people won't buy it. It's right. like, you know, the first time I did, well, I was commissioned to do the 17th hole at, at Pebble Beach, right? Well, they wanted me mm-hmm. to do it from the T, And I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know what the 17th hole looks like from the T? It's like this little mm-hmm. teeny strip. <laughs> golf and the rest is sky and grass and i right. said no i'm not doing that <laughs> <laughs> and they well, let me do it the way i wanted and it's been one of the best selling prints i've ever had well and, and see and this is where you know the artist's eye sort of comes into it i mean mm-hmm. you know it, it, as you said it for for them it's it, you know it's about the nostalgia and you know, let's. You know, this hole was was featured in in whatever the case may be, right. and uh, or has had this this level of history. 
but it mm-hmm. may not actually be the best representation of even the course. Um, right. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things to go into it. Now, I mentioned earlier, and I wanted to ask you, and, and again, you don't have to give specific examples on each of them, but just maybe a, a general overview. I, I mentioned that mm-hmm. you've worked on or, or contributed to some of the personal collections of um, some notables, uh, Jack Nicholas, uh, Reese Jones, and, and uh, Raymond Floyd. Mm-hmm. What particularly were they were they looking for? Was it just um, specific? Were the specific holes, or were they just sort of wanting to sort of recapture moments in their uh, you know history? What what was some of the requests? It was basically their uh, well. Let's see. How do we put it? Um, significant. Well, for in, as Jack Nicholas, for instance, his significant wins. Uh, right. He has he has seven paintings, and they were all his major wins and his favorite holes, mm-hmm. pretty much. And um, well, Ray Floyd with Augusta, and then uh, Reese Jones. These were courses he designed. <laughs> so, right. Right. You know, it was like a special, and even his father bought one of Hazeltine. That was right. one of his favorites. So there's all kinds of reasons. So it was, but, yeah. Right. So it was, it was more or less a, a a walk down memory lane for them, as they wanted a, mm-hmm. a record in 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 in, um, in whether it be a painting or even in print, uh, mm-hmm. some memorable moments throughout their uh, history, either as a course designer right. or as a player who had a number of, um, you know, events that, that were successful for them. So obviously that would make sense. So it's very interesting um, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, just what everybody's viewpoint. Um, now, I mentioned, too, also that uh, you were inducted into the Lowcountry Golf Hall of Fame uh, and yeah. also honored by Golf Digest uh, with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Those obviously... Uh, had to be very special for you, correct? Oh my and, gosh, yes. Um, <laughs> I what mean, did it was, that mean it's when really you got amazing. the call or got the? Well, yeah, go ahead. because for one thing, uh, you know, I've always felt like even though I was in the golf world, I was not really in it. You know, the art is not exactly mm-hmm. accepted as a major part of the game, even though it's it is. <laughs> so. Right. As a kind of an outsider working in the golf world, it meant a huge thing. You know, it was huge to be recognized. And then also being a female and, well, at least when I started, what, what amounted to mm-hmm. be a very male world, that was right. quite an achievement to negotiate that, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the early days. It's like, well, you know. I went to yeah, Pine said, Valley. I was that. actually in Pine Valley. <laughs> How many women could right. have said that in 1990, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and you said in, I believe, in 1988, you went to the PGA Merchandising Show and mm-hmm. found that there really wasn't a lot in, in or, or if anything, really in in your area of expertise representing right. the golf industry. And, 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 and really, in this that day and age, I mean, that's, what, 20-something years ago, um, or probably thirty years. Sorry, thirty. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, thirty some odd years ago. Um, you know, that's surprising with as much mm-hmm. history and nostalgia that goes with with golf to begin with. That's you know, there really wasn't a lot of representation there. 
So well, that surprised you've obviously me done a lot. too. Right. You know, it did. As a as a fine artist, you know, from uh, training and my whole life orientation was towards fine art. To go and see an area, a genre that wasn't well represented at all with fine art except for the antiquities. Now, there's plenty of fine art in the antiquities, but not current. And then what little Mm -hmm. art there was out there was so poorly printed and presented and cheap. You know, it was just like astounding to me that nobody had done anything with that. Hmm. So I decided I would do it. (laughs) So you were, you could, Call yourself really somewhat of a pioneer then in oh, golf yeah. to to really, you know. <laughs> well, I know I didn't you know are, how much saying. of one when I started. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw the potential. Well, I didn't know how hard it was going to be, right. but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you fared very well over the years, obviously, uh, and and opened up a door. Yeah, you opened up a door to uh, an area of of golf that, you know, really we had not seen um, mm-hmm. up until that point. Um, right. And in 2003, you were one of the founding trustees of the Academy of Golf Art. Right. Um, tell us about that. Why, why was that? What was, what was your thought process mm-hmm. in developing that? What was it you well, wanted to achieve? Again, it was to bring to the art world uh, recognition of a genre that wasn't being recognized. Uh, I thought by forming the academy and trying to have shows and connect collectors with artists and then providing a, a place for really good artists who may like to do golf art, providing them a place to do it and show it Mm -hmm. i mean not necessarily someone that did nothing but golf art but recognized fine artists there's plenty of them that like the game of golf you know and they'd probably really like to do it so that was the idea and we formed it then and we've had some shows but you know we've had economic problems with different sure economy problems <laughs> few here and there right <laughs> that would set us back and then we'd get going again and we're about you know dealing with that again and hopefully we'll get through it again so but it's a process and you and you have a number of of um artists now that participate that that provide um mm-hmm. content if you will um, yeah, mm-hmm. to the Academy of, of Golf Art. So it's it obviously has grown. It like any organization, it has its ups and downs, and you know, f- uh, fiscal economies obviously um, affect that. But overall, it's 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 gained some momentum over the last thirty or so yeah. years since you really pioneered a lot, and people have taken right. an interest in not only what you do, but what some of the other others do as well. Correct. Right. Yes, and I think it's it's going to uh go to a different level here soon too. So, yes, it's very exciting. Very good. 
Now, I know that you also, um, I had a few weeks ago, I had Dr. Bern, Bernanke uh, mm-hmm. from the Gulf uh, Heritage Society who was on, and I know you know him very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I understand you're going to be participating in the Gulf Art Symposium uh, October 1st uh, of this year in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. The um, Gulf Historical Society is having their 50th year anniversary meeting, which is quite significant. And we just kind of uh, our two organizations, the Academy of Golf Art, and we're kind of, you know, aligned a lot. So we decided mm-hmm. to combine forces, and we'd have a special exhibition, and also um, this. They put together this art symposium, which was really great. So, uh, yeah, I think the collectors, it's good for the collectors to have that kind of information and be introduced to the future antiquities, (laughs) not just past ones, (laughs) before we croak. Right. (laughs) You know, they should be collecting us now, not later. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I I couldn't agree I couldn't agree more. Um so I mean I, I think it's very uh, good as I as I mentioned when when Dr. Byrne was on the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he obviously approaches things from a a different area of of uh, golf um but um you know, again, he's looking at the um the heritage if you will of the game mm-hmm. and and uh he's looking to pass that heritage on to future generations. I mean, he shared a number of stories Absolutely. when he was here about uh you know, about what they're trying to do to a younger generation mm-hmm. to make them aware and actually um what was quite interesting was how engaging, which is very surprising especially this day and age, how engaging some of these youngsters were uh in wanting to learn more. So right. when you look at the future of what you do in golf landscapes, where do you see or what would you like to see happen moving forward? Uh, well, we have we have a plan. <laughs> and part of that, of <laughs> course, is in, to incorporate uh, working with young people and having, uh, I don't know, maybe contests or just somehow getting involved with maybe first tee groups or, you know, just sponsoring uh, classes for young people that might be interested in golf art, too. So there's all kinds of opportunity there. It's just that we just haven't got there yet. <laughs> but it's in the Well, plan. it's like everything. It's all, yeah, it's always a work in progress. I mean, it's always, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you know, you have to, you know, do one step at a time. Now, you yeah. also have a, a website, and we'll talk mm-hmm. about that uh, for a few moments, uh, hartoad.com, and it's spelled H-A-R-T-O-U-G-H.com is your website. And yes. uh, people can actually look at um, a lot of the work that you've done. Now, obviously, you you do paintings, but you also have them then uh, turning into prints as well, which you obviously sell. Um, right. So mm-hmm. are there th- things that you're working on right now? Are there some new projects that you're working on now um, that uh, you want to share with us? Well, I've just I've been working with private clubs uh, recently. I haven't been doing too many of the championships, uh, you know, tournament work. I kind of ended those series, but 
Uh, I just finished one for uh, Glenview in Chicago. They had the Western Open here just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a few more uh, private clubs in the future here. Um, oh, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> uh, oh, but uh, as far as the website, we have... Um, we are start we've been doing these uh guess the winner contests where you know a ma- major tournament like next week we'll have a guess the winner contest for the tour championship and we give away a free print to people that guess the winner so that's kind of fun and it engages everyone uh i think they really enjoy it so that's something we we like to do and keep that up We'll have a Ryder Cup contest, too, and, you know, that's kind of fun. And but we for those also, that want to, obviously, we, go ahead. Please go ahead. Uh, we also specialize in custom things. If somebody wants something in particular, particular size, canvas, uh, paper, or maybe texturized, uh, we kind of specialize in doing and fitting, uh, you know, specific projects for either offices or homes or whatever. So you actually talk to a person when you order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that makes a that makes a big difference. I know I'm yes. um, probably much like you. I'm not really fond of the automated uh, no. uh, systems that we. Uh, I mean, you can you can that. do so it. You yeah, can order on the website like any other website, but. But uh, the girl that works for me, Sharon, she's like, whatever we can do to accommodate, you know, we figure out framing mm-hmm. for them and everything. So we just do whatever. And that's kind of give them our specialty right now is customer service. Exactly. Giving them a more customized mm-hmm. approach to customer service. So I agree. I think that's fantastic. I want to ask you something uh mm-hmm here about when you're painting is I found this very interesting mm-hmm. you you talked a little bit maybe you could share a little bit of it again um, mm-hmm. when when somebody looks at you know I'm, I'm looking at I'm on your website right now and that's why I'm asking and there's a, okay. uh, a, a the painting of painting um, in progress the 13th no the painting of 13th green uh, at Augusta National and what's really interesting is mm-hmm. There's so much going on in the background with the trees and the azaleas right. and so forth. When you look at an image like this, where do you start? Where do you begin? <laughs> where you know, I mean, well, I, like I, I look said, at it, and obviously you're looking through a, a more experienced eye. But when you've got the, the photos and you've got the image in mind, but when mm-hmm. you start on a painting like this, mm-hmm. where in the painting do you start? Well, you can actually see that if you go to the um, Studio tab, uh, and look mm-hmm. at the drop down. You'll see uh, works in progress. I guess that's what mm-hmm. it is, and you can see a painting from yep. start to finish. There's a number of ones there. You can just pick one you want to look at, and you'll see exactly how it's done. And I start wow. out with a just a plain blue line drawing and then I start usually with the sky and the things that are furthest away 
and work towards the foreground. So that's generally how on, I mean, obviously there's differences in every image that you're looking at, but generally that's how Mm -hmm. you work with is you sort of work from the furthest to the closest. Right. Like if you, you know, look at any, you pick any one and click on it, you'll see all this, all the progress of that painting. And you can make like a slideshow of it. It's amazing. You know, when when you look at uh, through that, and, I, and I'm going to uh, again, we'll give the uh, the listeners the website uh, here again in a second. And uh-huh. uh, obviously, we want to wait until after after the show, after we're done, uh, they can go and check it out. Um, I was just being a little bit nosy, and I wanted to uh, uh, to ask you that because it, it's it, well, it's very interesting. I find it. Um, you know, I'm I'm certainly not going to try my hand at at what you're doing here because uh, I'm quite certain it's it's going to look uh, entirely different than what you have, uh, but it's <laughs> well, always interesting to me when I see when I see. Uh, trust me, it's going to look much different. Um, <laughs> but you know, when I when I look at these images, mm-hmm. and it's very very interesting because it starts off something very very what you would think would be simplistic, right? Uh, looking, but mm-hmm. as you evolve through the various images and you start to see it cha- take shape. It's just amazing, and then when you see the finished product, the amount of detail that obviously went into it and how it how yeah. it sort of progressed, it is very very interesting in the process. And mm-hmm. you know, how did you? Was this something that you, you know, sort of somewhat came naturally? I don't mean obviously you you were involved yeah. at an earlier age and, and artist, but is this a technique that you you're taught along the way when you went to school and that and and was first learning how to become an artist? Um, how did you learn to do that? Because that's not something it, that most people looking evolved. at a painting. I'd have to say it evolved. Okay. And the way I paint is not the way you're taught to paint. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I paint in sections, which, you know, every teacher tells you to work the whole painting up at once. Well, as you can see, most of that canvas is right. blank. Each part I do mm-hmm. is finished. It's like, a process called ala prima where you're putting all that paint on and working it wet and it's done before you move on to the next mm-hmm. section so each piece fits into the next piece basically it's it's kind of a weird way Much of working like a, <laughs> it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle really exactly. if you think about it you know you yeah. each piece you find and then you find the next piece or in your case you're you develop and, and paint the next piece that goes into... Um, well, whatever comes it, it's next. It's very interesting. Yeah, right. it, it's like, you know, if there's trees in the sky, then the trees have to be in the sky before I get to the next section. So, uh, right. it, it, yeah, I, it's hard to explain. You have to look at those paintings in progress to see kind of... You get a general idea of how it's done. And... Like I said, it's not the way anyone's taught to paint, and most artists even look at it and go, "What?" <laughs> they don't <laughs> quite get it either. Well, <laughs> well that's, but that's the probably what take sep- a separates very long, you. Yeah, that they take a very long time to do too. I mean, depending on the size, they can take up to six months or more. Wow. So uh, it's you know. It's a long process. 
Well, I can I can assure you it would be um, much longer than six months uh, for me. Uh, it might be closer to six years, <laughs> and that would still be that would still be working on the sky. And and uh, I'm sure um, many people looking at my images would probably uh, uh, still be scratching their head for another couple of years after trying to figure out what it was I was trying to accomplish. But um, you obviously were, were very blessed with, with uh, a wonderful talent. And, um, well, that and, helped. You know, have, have been, <laughs> w- sure. I, mean, I obviously, was born with yeah, that, and that was, that was just there. Uh, I've always had it. I've always had a color sense. I've always had a perspective sense. So I didn't have to struggle much, you know, to uh, – to get where I was, and that's why the work constantly evolves. Uh, it's just building on, you know, what you already know, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, I think everybody is, is, has some um, skill or, or what have you um, very mm-hmm. early on, and it's a matter of, of, you know, sort of building that out, as you said, and some people never exercise that particular area um, unfortunately and others do so I want to go back very uh, briefly if we can to the AGA or the Academy of Golf Art Um, Mm -hmm. you're obviously guys are very open to accepting new artist uh, members and that Uh, is there Mm -hmm. a process what do they have to go through somebody that may be tuning into the show that uh, has uh, you know uh, developed Mm -hmm. uh, some artistic talent themselves and particularly in this field of of golf um, Mm -hmm. how do they go about becoming a member AGA. What, what's involved in that? Well, they have to go to the website and make contact and then submit their work. I mean, basically uh, representations of what they're doing. And then we kind of all get together and decide. You know, there's different levels Is there of membership. Sure. Are are there things that you look for as as members um, as you're looking at new members? Are there things in the work that you're looking? I mean, for instance, if you've got two people and they're kind of almost exactly the same, does that matter? I no, wonder. It's, or it's a skill level, okay. basically. I mean, you're looking for depth and skill and right and imagery. Obviously, all of there's so many aspects of what makes a good painting. It's you're just looking for all of that. Got it. Um, well, I think that um, I, I think, like I said, what what you've done um, from the very beginning in really opening up this this line of you know of artistic talent that really mm-hmm. has not been seen in the golf industry for a long time is is you know is a great gift not just the actual artwork itself but just um that you've opened a door really for others to to walk through um and as i said earlier you really are a pioneer of of um of golf art and uh your repertoire of work and and the different groups that you've worked with and continue to work mm-hmm. with obviously shows that very very well and and uh, I know you're very, very proud of what you do, and I know you obviously enjoy yeah. that. And even though you said you never, never set out to get in the golf business, um, you've certainly well, uh, you've certainly done it. It didn't take me long a, a, to decide that it was a good place to be. 
<laughs> right. I mean, well, I really enjoy yeah, the golf people, and I I love the different landscape of all the different courses, and it's a it's a really uh, wonderful world, the golf world. You know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the people a, really of... appreciate everything I do. It's not like. Well, for a while I was I was working with equine work art and I the difference in the people it was like, you know, they didn't like anything unless it was their horse or their breed. And right. I found that really off-putting. <laughs> so, when I started with the golf, you know, it's like, oh, they love everything you do. It didn't matter if they'd ever played the course even, or it wasn't their particular club. They just appreciated it so much, and I thought, boy, this is great. <laughs> These are great people. Well, I think, yeah, I think golf has a very unique um, advantage, if you will, over a lot of other industries and a lot of even other yeah. sports. Um, golf has a very long history, um, uh-huh. you know, it, you know, hundreds of years, in fact, and it's it's had so many different people that have, um, you know, from people very very early on to you know the Arnold Palmers and the Jack Nicholas and uh-huh. you know a little bit later on Tiger Woods and and some of the young ones coming up now and even some of the a lot of the young ladies who have gone on and and done things to really change the way we see golf today and really you're you're able to capture so much of that in your paintings um well i'll tell you even you those know, that golf is a discipline and so is art mm-hmm. and i can right. really relate to it on that even though i don't play the game i appreciate it on that mm-hmm. level I, I love watching people play uh, love watching the tournaments and seeing uh, what it takes to be a professional golf, uh, you know, player is is incredible. It's an, an amazing, amazing game. You can play at any level. Fantastic. And I think that's what the appeal is. Um, uh-huh. You know, we all would love, you know, those of us that play would love to, you know, be battling it out on Augusta. St. Andrews or, or some of the other, uh, you know, Pebble Beach or what have you. But sure. the interesting thing is even at at the most novice level, um, you uh-huh. know, you look at little kids and junior programs and things, um, there's just, you know, it just takes, and we've talked about this many times on my show, you know, it just mm-hmm. takes that one well-struck shot to bring somebody back. They could be a terrible golfer overall, but one good shot or one good drive, and it's just enough to um, keep their interest going. And very few other sports can do that. And right. so I think what you're doing, again, being able to capture so much of that uh, is, is obviously very appealing and has become so for these uh, these last several decades, but um, well, Linda, I want to I want to thank you once again for joining me tonight mm-hmm. on, on Golf Talk Live. I appreciate it very much. I enjoy uh, our conversation. You've got a lot of uh, great insight um, into what you do and and make it very interesting to want to learn more. So uh, for the folks mm-hmm. listening, there's uh, two websites I'm going to direct you to. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, Linda's website, which is uh, harto.com and it's h-a-r-t-o-u-g-h.com yes. uh, you and can see a lot of her great work everyone 
everyone to sign up for the emails because that's where you get your guess the winner contest. All right, definitely do that. Sign up for their email uh, while they go there, mm-hmm. harto.com. And then also check out the Academy of Gar- Golf Art. Uh, mm-hmm. Their website is academyofgolfart.org. Uh, if you're somebody that's uh, maybe an artist yourself and you want to find out about how to uh, get your uh, work uh, connected with them, you can go there as well. And just to see some of the other uh, golf artists uh, in addition to Linda. But Linda, thank you very much once again for joining me this evening on Golf Talk Live. It's a pleasure. Um, Aww, I enjoyed I having enjoyed you on it. the show. Enjoyed it very much. And Thank uh, you. I, you're welcome, and uh, much continued success. And I hope you'll uh, come back and join me again in a future show. Love to, love to. All right, All you right. have a great evening and a great weekend, and thank you again. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Uh, bye bye. All right, that was uh, Linda Harto. She is a world-renowned golf landscape uh, artist, and uh, you can find her on her website at uh, harto, that's H-A-R-T-O-U-G-H dot com. Uh, you can check out all of her work, and, and uh, you can actually check out the process. You can see some of the paintings, uh, the work in progress, if you will, uh, on there, some of the uh, paintings that she's done, and see how she, uh, the first uh, few images, and as it goes along from beginning to end, you can see the process that we talked about here tonight uh, on there as well. And don't forget to sign up for uh, their email uh, newsletter, if you will, uh, get on their mailing list, and uh, you can get a lot of uh, great opportunities there as well. And then don't forget to also uh, go visit the uh, golf, uh, the Academy of Golf their website to check out some of the other artists uh, as well. But I want to thank uh, the gang, if you will, from Coach's Corner, Tim Kramer, Alicia Larson, and Clint Wright. Uh, thanks, guys, for doing a great job earlier on the show, and I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, and listening to my conversation with Linda Harto, world-renowned golf landscape uh, artist. Um, I will see you next week for another show, uh, another great panel on Coach's Corner, and another insightful interview with my special guest here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Be safe and have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.